Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, it's episode 105, and we're going to discuss cooperative driving. That's right, a way that we can all get along on the road and have a smile on our face when we reach our destination. We'll also review a unique cooktop that's perfect for vans, a tell a tale from the road involving alligators, and we'll talk about a way to get Wikipedia to work without an internet connection. That's true, I've done it many times. Hello everyone, welcome back. Happy to be here with you. It's actually been an exciting week for me and the podcast as I'm starting to be contacted by people who want me to promote their products, which was kind of a goal of mine when I started this podcast. So I'm about to receive some things that I will review and the idea is that they're giving me these things for free and I will review them, which is great, but... I promise you, I will never, ever give a favorable review for anything just because they gave it to me for free. I'm only signing contracts that let me say whatever the heck I want, because that's the most important thing to me. So when you hear these things coming in future weeks, just know that everything I'm saying, I stand behind. If I don't like the product, I'm going to tell you that. If it has problems, I'm going to tell you that too. But if I do like it, well, then I mean it. (laughs) So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I like to go on YouTube and watch accidents. (laughs) Not in any ghoulish way. I like to watch these compilation videos of dash cam footage that show wrecks and accidents, not because I'm overly interested in watching carnage, but because I like to see the patterns. And I feel like watching a lot of those videos gives me a better sense of what to anticipate on the road. I mean, you start to see patterns, like a lot of accidents are caused by people running red lights and stop signs. A lot of accidents happen at intersections. A lot of accidents happen when people merge. You start to see these patterns. And after you watch a few of these videos, you can anticipate what's going to happen And I feel like that will translate onto the road. And even if it doesn't, well, it still gives me a better understanding of the mechanics of driving. But I recently started watching road rage videos. These are videos that people have taken, usually with their dash cams, where they've had conflict between other drivers. And again, it's the same thing. I notice these patterns. Now, obviously, because the video is on the channel and because you're watching it, there is going to be a conflict. I mean, (laughs) that's the nature of the thing. But what the conflict is, you can start to predict before it happens. And an interesting thing that I have seen is that a lot of conflicts start because somebody beeps their horn. It doesn't actually matter if the horn beep was aggressive or well-intentioned or anything. There are people who are triggered by being beeped at. I mean, some of these road rage incidents are people sitting at a stoplight that's turned green, not moving. Someone taps the horn at them to say, hey, it's time to go. And the person will fly into a rage and run out of their car and pound on the window. But the more important thing I noticed is that in these road rage incidents, I can often find fault in both sides. It's not often, in fact, that the case is that one person was wronged and then just recorded it and say, wow, look at this guy. In most of the cases, they were willing and active participants in this act of rage, whatever it may be. 
And that got me to thinking about something I've been thinking about a long time. We should focus on cooperative driving rather than competitive driving. Now, if you think about driving in the context of video games, for example, I only know of two kinds of video games that involve driving as a main concept. One in the most common is car racing. You're trying to beat all the other cars. You're trying to cut them off. You're trying to get past them and wreck them if you can. And then the other kind of driving game, and the one I enjoy, is where that's literally what you're trying to do is wreck the other cars. I don't know of any games where your goal is to simply reach your destination safely. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And, and it's probably because that's boring. But that is what we're trying to do when we're driving on the road. At least it should be. So you're on the road and you're there with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 other cars, depending on the situation. And it seems like you're in a race. Everyone's jockeying for a position. It's like, oh, that lane's moving faster than me. I need to get over there and get in that lane. Or, oh, there was that space there and that guy slipped in there and took it. Or that guy pulled out in front of me. Oh, this, this idea that we're competing against each other on the road is a major contributor to road rage, I believe. And it doesn't have to be that way. Now, if you follow the podcast for a while, or you've seen the logo that I use, it is called Hook Waka Bang. It is a question mark, a greater than symbol, and an exclamation point. And I've been using this for years now. And it, it has different meanings for different people, and I encourage that. I'm not trying to say that this means this, and if you don't think that, it's wrong. No, I want it to be an exploration of a concept. And the concept is, ask questions before you react. That's my interpretation of it. If you observe something, like somebody driving in a way that you don't like, instead of instantly being angry at them, which is our natural reaction and can't be overcome to some extent, take a step back and consider why they did that. They could be an inconsiderate jerk. It's possible. Or they could have just dropped a hot cup of coffee in their lap and they're trying to pull over to the side of the road as soon as they can. Or they might be having car trouble. Or they might just be clueless and not realize that what they're doing is dangerous. It's easy to understand how all these things can happen if we take a step back and consider that we have also done all these things. I certainly have. Of all the many thousands and hundreds of thousands of miles I've driven in my life, I have done stupid and inconsiderate things from time to time. I try not to. I don't want to do these things. But there are times that I just miss it for whatever reason. I have cut people off. I have improper properly merged. I've done a bunch of things that were just dumb that I regret. Having done those things, I find it a little easier to forgive people who do. Now, that's not to say that I don't get angry when I'm driving. When I'm out there and I see people just completely ignoring traffic laws, swerving in and out of traffic, just driving like they're in a video game, yeah, I'm annoyed. I think it's dangerous. And in a few cases, I've actually called the police if I thought that a police intervention could actually make things safer. Uh, there was one time I was doing 80 miles an hour on a road and I was passed by a truck pulling a house. <laughs> 
I'm doing 80, and I'm passed by a house that was going so fast that the wind was ripping the siding off of it, and it was falling into the road. I did call the police on that, and they did respond. Anyway, I think a much better way to look at driving is we're all in this together. We all have some place to go, and what can we do to help each other get there? No, Really, start looking at the cars around you as your partners, your teammates. They're on your side, even if they're not. Because once you start getting in that mode, you become kind of a steward for the road. You become somebody who is taking an active part in making the driving situation better for everyone. And so what does that look like in real life? Well, it means making space for people to merge. If you see someone with their turn signal on, slow down a bit. Give them some space to come in. Don't speed up and try to pass them because, oh, they're trying to get in my lane. Folks, it ain't your lane. It's our lane. We need to share it. Let's share it kindly. It's about trying to anticipate and accommodate the needs of others in a reasonable way. Now, it's not simple. It's complicated. There are times when you try to do the right thing and it can make things worse. And unfortunately, the only way I know to compensate for that is with experience. There are definitely times when you don't want to make space to let somebody come in because you're going to be impacting the cars behind you, for example. When should you let someone in and when shouldn't you? Experience is going to have to tell you that. You're going to have to see how that works. If you're the only car going down the road and you stop to let someone cut in front of you, that kind of doesn't make sense because you were going to pass them in about three seconds anyway. But if you're in a long line of cars and you're coming up on a red light, well, yeah, there's no big deal in stopping and letting someone come in. So I can't give you a list of things, do this, do that. All I can give you is an idea that you should try to adopt this attitude that you're driving to help all the drivers on the road get to where they're going. When you do this, any aberrations, like anybody who's driving like a jerk, are just that. They're aberrations. They can be excluded from your mental state. They can be just written off as, hmm, wonder what's going on with that guy. Let's stay out of his way. And I think it's much more likely that you will arrive at your destination with a smile on your face, or at least not a scowl, <laughs> because you will have been part of the solution rather than a powerless person stuck in this sea of angry motorists. Am I crazy? Am I a Pollyanna? I don't know. I don't think so. And I know that this behavior has helped me on the road, and I'm absolutely not perfect at it at all. I definitely get upset with people, but what I don't do ever is engage with people. I don't yell at people. I don't flip them off. And if they ever flip me off or say anything to me, I just keep on driving. That is a matter of safety rather than anything else. So take it for what it's worth. I think the world would be a better place if we all considered driving to be a cooperative activity. And yeah, I think we're a long way from that, but I'm going to try to do my part to get us a little bit closer to a kindler, gentler driving experience. Tech Talk. So the traditional wisdom, and I don't disagree with this, is that if you have glass in your van, which we all do at some point, it's either up front or all over the place, you will have condensation. And we've talked about condensation forever, but I just saw a really interesting tip from some folks I've been following on YouTube for a while that uh, travel around in an NV200 in the UK. 
This channel is called Life is Too Short, and they bought a built-out NV200. It's very nice. And they travel around in it, and they recently posted this video called Stop Van Condensation with three exclamation points. And yes, I will have a link in the show notes, but you can also just find it. And they did something interesting that I haven't seen before, and I thought I'd share a lot, share this tip with you that it appears to work. So, like everybody, they get condensation in their vans when it's cold out. And they have an insulated van and everything, and they, they you know, they have a dry heater. They're doing all the right things. But they didn't want to put Reflectix on their front window because it doesn't let light in, which is true. Reflectix is a complete light blocker. So they thought, well, Reflectix is just bubble wrap with an aluminum coating on it. That's really all Reflectix is. What if we just used bubble wrap? This is actually kind of smart. It's the bubble wrap part of Reflectix that is the insulation part. The aluminum part is the reflective part. And what insulation does is it prevents cold surfaces from meeting warm, moist surfaces, which can prevent condensation. So the idea was that they would put the bubble wrap on the windows and that would prevent the warm, moist air from hitting the window and causing condensation. And they did it a few different ways, and they found a trick that is you let a little bit of condensation build up, just a little bit, and then you put the bubble wrap up, and the condensation that's already on the glass makes the bubble wrap stay on the glass. Uh, it kind of, like, sticks it on there so you don't have to tape it or anything. And then in the morning, you just peel off the bubble wrap, and heck, no condensation. It seems to work, and I understand why it works, and I think it's kind of a smart idea. Certainly an inexpensive idea. I mean, bubble wrap's not the most expensive thing in the world. Now, they said in the video that they tried some of the really, really small cell bubble wrap, and they kind of wish they had gotten the bigger cell bubble wrap, but I'm not sure that would work as well. That would require another test. But folks, if you are in a situation where you only have windows in the front and you're trying to prevent condensation, you still want light to come through, this might be a way to do it for fairly cheap. Just put bubble wrap on the windows and it should cut down on your condensation and let light through. So again, link in the show notes. The name of the YouTube channel is Life is Too Short. Lovely couple. They're very peaceful and gentle folks and I, I enjoy watching their channel. Tales from the Road. Many years ago, I was on Sanibel Island in Florida, where I've spent a lot of time. I almost feel like I've lived there. I've spent so much time there. And when we first started going there in the early 80s, we used to stay down in a place called Blind Pass, which was a group of condominiums that were built in the late 70s. And this was before they had established a public beach there. So if you went out to these condos, it was kind of like you had your own private beach, a very large beach, because there was no place there for anyone to park to go to the beach except people at the condo. So I went there with some friends and we kind of felt like we owned the place and we would go out there at night and do all kinds of stupid teenagery stuff. I mean, no, not the drinking and the smoking and the fires and all that stuff. We would kind of pretend to be commandos and stuff and lurk around in the woods and stalk people. And, well, all right, I better stop there. But anyway... I need to describe what this beach was like. Sanibel Island's about the size of Manhattan, okay? There's a main road that splits the island, and we were off to one side. Of course, you leave the main road, you get to the condos, and then just beyond the condos, there is this body of water called a slough. Now, a slough is a river 
that doesn't flow. It's really a long pond in the shape of a river. There was a bridge across that, and that led to this big beach. Now, this slough was miles long, so there were a few bridges across it. And there was one right by the condos, and we'd go across and go to the beach and do our thing. And we were out there one night, and for whatever reason, I got separated from the two friends I was with. I don't know why. It was probably because I just wanted to see what it was like to be out on the beach by myself, whatever. But at some point, my friends said it was time to go back, and they just left me out there. Now, this is fine. It is extremely dark on Sanibel's beaches at night, and the beaches are so separate from the living areas. This is not the kind of concrete jungle kind of an island. It's There's always a lot of sand and trees between you and the buildings. That it is easy not to be able to find your way back at night because you don't know where to walk up the beach to get back to your condo. Now, I knew how to solve that problem. I left markers in the sand or whatever. But there was a problem I didn't anticipate. I was out there maybe another half an hour, and I walked up the beach in the right place and went onto the bridge. And I had a flashlight with me, which <laughs> which isn't too surprising because it was dark. But when I shined my flashlight on the bridge, I saw two other lights shining back at me. And they were very low, and they were in fact on the bridge. And after a short amount of time, they moved. And they moved in a way that they got brighter. And I realized that what I was looking at was a fairly large alligator, and it had discovered that I was there and was now looking at me. Now, there are lots of alligators in Sanibel. It's on the southern part of Florida. We had seen alligators all the time. And in fact, that night, as we were walking along the slough to get to the bridge, we could hear alligators jumping in the water as we walked. This wasn't that big of a deal. But in this case, there was a large alligator on the bridge that I needed to walk across to get back to the condo. And, and this was a little bit of a problem. So what did I do? Well, I went back down the beach and walked about a mile out of my way and went over a different bridge and then walked back down the road. <laughs> because discretion is the better part of valor. And while maybe I would have scared that alligator off because they're not the most aggressive things in the world, despite what you may have heard, why take the chance? And, you know... Bad things happen sometimes. On September 11th, 2001, a date that you might remember, a man was actually killed on Sanibel as he was walking his dog as an alligator jumped out of the water and attacked his dog and he tried to defend his dog and the alligator was like, well, you're bigger than the dog and the alligator took the guy down instead. You may not have heard that story because, well, September 11th, 2001 was a rather momentous day. But yeah, that happened on Sanibel. So I am, I am pretty happy with my decision. I think as a general rule, if there is a large toothsome animal between you and where you're going, maybe go another way. Just saying. Product review. So I've been looking for a cooktop to install permanently in my van. And I don't know why. I mean, ultimately, I don't think this makes a lot of sense. I think having a portable cooktop you use in the van and that you can also take outside makes a lot more sense. But I don't know. For whatever reason, I decided I wanted to have one permanently installed. And, and yes, actually, the state of Illinois requires that to make the thing an RV. But I had already passed that point by literally screwing my portable stove to the countertop. <laughs> that counted as a permanent install. Anyway, I was looking for a built-in one. 
but I wanted electronic ignition. I, I didn't want one that you had to strike a match and light. And I don't know why. It was just kind of this bugaboo in my head. My little portable butane stove, I can just turn the knob and it lights itself and I don't have to use a match. And I couldn't get over the idea that I'd have to use a match for the stove in the camper. And most of them are like that. Now, you can get household cooktops that hook up to AC power and produce a spark, but then you have to have the inverter on just to start your stove, and I thought that was silly. So I did find a stove, this Ramblewood stove, that actually uses a D battery to produce that spark, and it lasts like a year. And I thought, well, this is perfect. So it's if, if you're interested in this, it is a Ramblewood GC2 37 and that P is important, high-efficiency two-burner gas cooktop. The P stands for propane. Now, these things come in a configuration that you can switch them between natural gas and propane, but if you get the one that has the P, it is already set up for propane, so you don't have to change any of the things. Uh, more on that in a minute. Now, it's a, it's a nice unit. It comes with two different styles of knobs. It has a heavy grate. It's stainless steel, and it has a big high output burner, like higher output than most RV stoves would have. I mean, if you want to boil a big pot of water, this thing's going to do it much faster. And then a little tiny burner which is great for simmering and stuff, which is often a problem on these stoves. It's often very difficult to get the temperature down low. So I really like those features. I think that makes this thing great. Also, when you turn the knob, it just lights. That's awesome too. So with all of that said, you might think I'm gonna give this thing an unqualified recommendation that everyone should buy it. Yes, there's a link in the show notes. But there are some cons. One of them's pretty large. First off is the cost. It's $210, which is not an inexpensive way to get a stove in your van. You can do it for half that very easily. But this was something I was going to splurge on, so I was like, okay, I'll spend the 210 bucks. The bigger problem is that it comes with a regulator, and this is a very complicated thing to solve. I'm not exactly sure what the problem is, but this regulator does not work with propane tanks installed in vans. Those gas grill propane tanks, which is what I'm using, a 20 pound propane tank, the pressure that comes out of them is too much for this regulator and the regulator basically blocks the flow of gas. So I contacted the company who was in China and actually talked to them on the phone and they said, yes, you need to go get a regular gas grill regulator. All right, well, that's kind of annoying. You spend 210 bucks on something and then you have to buy another part. But this is a fairly common part and okay, fine, I'll do that. But the real problem is, is the connection to this stove unit is a little weird. I'm not exactly sure what kind of a connection it is, but it's not what it looks like. You need basically to find an adapter that fits on it so you can hook up hoses. And you will find American style connectors that will screw onto this thing, but they will leak. And no amount of tape or dope is gonna stop that leaking. You need to find the adapter. So, do I recommend this thing? Yeah, if you're willing to go through all this hassle, I actually think it's great. Now, it does rattle a little bit when you ride. It isn't officially built for vans, but there are professional van builders who use this model, and I haven't found the rattling to be overly concerning, and if I were on a long trip, I mean, I could just take the grates off and put them in a drawer or whatever. It cooks great. The install was fairly simple with the exception of the gas hookup. 
So yes, I do recommend it, but know that it's not going to be all that easy. If it's your first time working with propane, you're going to have to learn a lot and you're going to have to be very comfortable with detecting leaks and putting on fittings and knowing the difference between all the different kinds of fittings because holy cow the land of gas is rife with different kinds of connectors that all look the same all that said i have a link in the show notes it is the ramblewood gc2 37p and now that it's all done i'm very happy to have it in my van a place to visit Because of jobs I've had and interests I've had in my life, I have visited a lot of quote-unquote paranormal places. Yeah, okay, enough of that. I grew up in New England, and in New England, there are a lot of unexplained structures. So New England has had people living in it for thousands and thousands of years. And by the time Europeans came here, most of those previous peoples were gone. And the best theory now, which is pretty well supported, is that Portuguese fishermen spread smallpox in the 1590s. And that basically wiped out the nearly the entire population of native folks in New England. But they built things. Uh, Mostly they built them out of wood and hide and things like that that didn't last. But sometimes they built them out of rock. Because if there's one truth I have learned in life, it is that if people live in a place where there are rocks, they will build things out of them. That's always true. And it was true in New England. And there are a lot of rocks in New England. When the glaciers came down through New England, they collected rocks as they tore apart mountains. The rocks would land on top of the glacier. And then when the glacier melted, the rocks stayed right there. So a walk in the woods of New England is a walk through rocks. Because of that, there were lots of rocks, add people, and people built things out of the rocks. Okay, there is a persistent myth throughout the paranormal community and through history even, you even learn this in history books, is that these ancient structures could not have been built by these primitive peoples. Oh no, we must have another explanation. Surely the ancient Celts or the Vikings came over and built these things, or maybe it was aliens. (sighs) At any rate, you can find a number of structures in New England that are ascribed to groups other than the people who are actually living there for whatever reason. One of those places that I think is a fun place to visit, even in the winter, is in Coventry, Rhode Island. And it is called the George Parker Woodland Wildlife Refuge. Isn't that a nice name? If you go to this place, after a very short hike, you will encounter small pyramids of stone, technically called cairns. And there are about a hundred of these things all through the woods. The woods are hilly and you're walking through there and there's trees everywhere and boom, there's this six foot, eight foot tall pile of rocks. And then around the corner, another six foot, eight foot tall pile of rocks. And there's no historic record of these other than in the 20th century. Basically, nobody wrote down Found these woods, was full of piles of rocks. I don't know why. So where did they come from? It's a mystery. You can play up the mystery all you want. Fact of the matter is, is that there were people living there, and there were rocks there, and the people built something out of those rocks. But in this case, my belief is they weren't building something. They were getting the rocks out of the way because they wanted to farm. (laughs) 
If you ever notice that New England is filled with stone walls, and it is, there is an amazing number of stone walls in New England. They're there for a few reasons, but the primary reason is that they were trying to get the rocks out of the field so that they could farm. And the natural thing to do was to pick up those rocks and put them on borders because you didn't farm on borders. You needed a marker there to say, this is my property, that's your property. Good fences make good neighbors. In the case of this site in Coventry, it's very hilly. Building walls would have been impractical, and it's my belief that the farmers there just piled the rocks up in these pyramidal shapes because pyramids are a very stable shape, which is why they last through history. And then they simply farmed around the pyramids. But if my theory is correct, why isn't there any historical documentation on it? Because why would there be? This was such a common thing that nobody, it would be like putting a wooden fence on your property. It's not like somebody would, mar oh, in this date in 1850, Farmer John put a wooden fence on his property. Let's document this for posterity. No, it was just a normal part of farming. Now, 200, maybe 300 years later, we're so removed from that that it's a mystery as to why these things would be there. Now, is it possible that the Native Americans did it and not the European colonists? Absolutely! Native Americans farmed. These rocks are of a size that a person can pick them up, or maybe two people, and put them in a pile. So we don't know who put them there. And we don't know for sure why. But Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is often the correct one, and, well, that's where I'm going with this. All that said, it's still a great place to visit. It's a little piece of wilderness in Rhode Island, and I love visiting these places, especially when you consider that all the trees around you weren't there 100 years ago. That was all farmland, and you can try to imagine what it must have looked like then. So anyway, sorry for the long rambling rant about paranormal places, but that's the kind of stuff I think about. So if you want to go visit this place, it's the George Parker Woodland Wildlife Refuge in Coventry, Rhode Island, and it's a lovely spot. If you're going in the summer, bring some mosquito spray, because holy cow. Resource recommendation. I used to do these cruises where I would be on the ship hosting a bunch of people and I was not given internet access. Internet access on ships up until recently was not only difficult but expensive. And I'm the kind of person who Wikipedia's everything. Like, I'm on Wikipedia 20 times a day. I donate money to them regularly because of this. I am a Wikipedia junkie. And I don't think that's a bad way to be. And I think Wikipedia is an amazing resource. And when I am not able to get internet access, I miss it. Well, folks, it turns out it's possible to just download Wikipedia. Yep, it's true. You can download all the content of Wikipedia and then run an app and you can use it offline. So if you want to know the history of a place you're going, you can Wikipedia it offline. And I think it's great. When I first started doing this about 2015, it was a 19 gigabyte download. It's up to about 122 gigabytes today. But hard drive space is cheap. I mean, you could basically have a USB drive that had all of Wikipedia on it. Now, it doesn't include the photos and movies and things like that. It's just the text. But still, it's an amazing resource. It's all 
free and there's like 16 different ways you can access it there's all kinds of programs and stuff like that so i'm going to put a link in the show notes that describes this process it's not that difficult although it tends to be in computerese language you basically use a program and you have it load the database and then you search it like normal and that's it once you set it up that's it and then you can update it as things get added to wikipedia but wow i feel so much more of a real person when i'm connected to wikipedia even if it's offline and i'm sure that's some sort of commentary on our modern state of being but heck if it means knowing more things i'm okay with it Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 105. I very, very much appreciate it. My YouTube channel is about to start up again. I did a whole bunch of experiments, and now I know what I'm going to be doing, so look for more YouTube content coming soon. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this quote from the Dalai Lama. Be kind whenever possible. It is always possible.